Good morning. It's great to be here. And it's just a joy to serve God, isn't it? It is such a joy to be involved with Jesus in building his church. I was one of six children, um, plus two adults. That was my parents. And uh, we drank a lot of milk. Uh, you remember milk bottles. Some of you are old enough to remember milk bottles. Well, we, uh, every evening we put six empty milk bottles out on the doorstep. And every morning, six full of bottles appeared. And uh, it was real milk with cream on the top. You need to buy tubs of cream. You just poured the, milk, the cream off the top and did whatever you want to do with that. But every morning, there was a fresh supply of milk. And you know, Jesus has given you and I, this gift of his love and all that we have, and we use it up and he fills you up again and replaces as regular, replaces all of that as regular as those daily pints of milk appeared on the doorstep. Uh, but Jesus doesn't charge you for it. There's no cost. It's all grace. It's all grace. John in John 1 says, from the fullness of his grace we have received one blessing after another, or literally grace upon grace. And it's God's riches at Christ's expense, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. Jesus paid the price for us. And Jesus is building his church. John begins his gospel with a magnificent description of Jesus, the creator, the life giver, life you know, life was in Christ. You know, the, the, uh, the revolutionary implications of that statement are just mind-boggling. Every living thing owns, owes its life to Jesus. He's the light bringer. He's the power giver to make us children of God. And this word, Jesus, became a living being and came to live on earth among us, a man full of grace and truth. He is the church builder. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He's the supplier of all the resources that you and I need to build a church. And he does all that for us even though he knows what we're like. I had to ask someone's forgiveness this morning because I sinned against them. And I receive grace because I'm not there yet. And God still loves me and still uses me, even though he knows what I'm like. And just as Jesus, as we'll see in the, in the account we're going to read, knew so much about Nathaniel and about Peter, and he knew about the other disciples too that he called, he knew their strengths and weaknesses, yet he called them and used them. That's amazing grace, isn't it? I could stop there, couldn't I? <laughs> Let's read John 1. That's the introduction, the sort of prologue at the beginning of John 1. That's just, I felt that's part of the whole thing. We'll begin at verse 35. It's the call of the disciples. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Poor John, you know, he's been discipling these guys and they just walk off after Jesus. Uh, turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? 
They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? They want to see what his life is like. Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Uh, do you see that? Four in the afternoon. John wrote this, probably, he's probably an old man when he wrote this gospel, but he still remembers the time when they met Jesus. He still remembers that time with Jesus. He puts the time in. And then verse 40, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas or Kephas, which was translated Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you and I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus knew all about these men he was calling. Uh, John pa uh, J.I. Packer, in Knowing God, writes, he, he writes wonderful words, I am graven on the palms of his hands. I am never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me. And there is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted for me, from me. And no moment, therefore, when his care falters. This is momentous knowledge. There is unspeakable comfort, the sort of comfort that energizes in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good. There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me. In the way I am often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. He sees all the twisted things about me that my fellow men do not see, and I am glad, and that he sees more corruption in me than that which I see in myself, which in all conscience is enough. There is, however, 
equally great incentive to worship and love God in the thought that for some unfathomable reason he wants me as his friend and desires to be my friend and has given his son to die for me in order to realize that purpose. Not merely that we know God, but that he knows us. Wow, isn't that just wonderful words? Wonderful truth. I, have, I just felt I have got five challenges, five consequences of all of that really that I want to bring from you that I've sort of discovered in this passage as I was praying about it and thinking about it. Uh, they, all, they all begin with E because that makes it easy. <laughs> um, the first one is explore the truth of Jesus, the, the truth about Jesus. The meeting of Jesus with Nathaniel was Jesus calling Nathaniel a true Israelite with no deceit, that Jesus saw him under a fig tree and that he would see angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And, I, you know, that, for me, points to Nathaniel being a man who knew God's word. Why do I say that? Well, if you look at the words there, the word deceit, Israelite, and also the, the reference to a fig tree, would probably have made Nathaniel think about Jacob in the Old Testament who was known as the, a deceiver or supplanter, the one who deceived his father into blessing him instead of his brother Esau. You can read Genesis 26 and 27 when you go home. And Nathaniel was sitting under a fig tree in Israel at that time. That was a place of peace and you could sit under a fig tree in the shade of the sun and you could meditate on God and on his word. And I think there's a good case for saying that Nathaniel was meditating on those scriptures perhaps about Jacob and meditating about God's plan for the nation Israel. Jacob was to be called Israel when God worked in his life and sorted him out. And out of that, encouragement was spoken into Nathaniel's life by Jesus. God knows your heart and mine this morning. Does he see a heart that's eager to discover more about Jesus and God's amazing plan for your life and your part in building his church? Don't be content with a little knowledge about Jesus. Don't be content with just some Sunday teaching. Get into God's word yourself and explore this amazing person, Jesus. And as I've, it's on the screen, yes. I mean, I'm not going to go into it, but just look at this passage and you see the truth of the Apostle John's testimony about Jesus. It comes from the Holy Spirit, what John is saying there, and from his life with Jesus. And the other thing is you also have this amazing testimony of John the Baptist in that passage and what he discovered about Jesus. Uh, behold the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. Not just a quick look, he says, behold, soak it up, dwell on it. One good look at Jesus, you know, is enough to make you dissatisfied with anyone else. No one else can be your saviour. So, Help build his church by knowing the word, sharing the word, getting into it and discovering truth about Jesus. Secondly, expel anything that would hold you back. 
Nathaniel was skeptical when he was told about Jesus of Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? In Jesus' day, Cana, Cana was a thriving town. That's where Nathaniel came from with a fishing industry, whereas Nazareth then was a tiny, insignificant village. Nathaniel could have held back and not gone to meet Jesus. I, I, I don't want to be anything to do with him. Country yokel uh, from this out-of-town place. But no, he went and discovered Jesus. He didn't hold back. And I just felt God saying, are you holding back this morning? You know, Jesus can use you, whoever you are. I never expected to be standing in front of a congregation speaking. When I was a teenager, sometimes I was asked to do a reading in church, and it terrified me. And right up until I said yes to God, I couldn't do it. On the day I said yes to God and getting into ministry, <laughs> my minister in the church I was booked me straight away to preach the next Sunday or to take a whole service the next Sunday. Talk about being thrown in at the deep end. But God used me. Are you holding back? Are you totally surrendered to Jesus? Because if you are, anything is possible. He's not... You know, God is not handicapped by our handicaps. God is not weakened by our weakness. In fact, when we are weak, the greatest power is there within us. I'm, I think I told you before, I'm reading about James Alexander, Gord, uh, Alexander Stewart, um, Scottish evangelist. I am amazed that people don't know about this man because he was such a powerful evangelist. The reason we don't, many people don't know about him is that most of the work he did was right across Europe and into Eastern Europe. He was absolutely amazing. But he started off, he became a Christian at the age of 14. Uh, he had no education, hardly any education, and almost immediately he started sharing his testimony in open-air meetings. And in his diary he wrote, my school uniform and short trousers attracted attention. <laughs> There's one way to get people to listen to you, wear short trousers. There's one or two here this morning, so you're, you're already anointed for evangelism. Um, <laughs> and, he, and he was one of those who carried text boards with text on front and back and he would go to the race course where there are hundreds of thousands of people and he would wander around and he would shout at them to get their attention and uh, he said well, when the race began there was no point in trying to do that because they're all watching the race so then he would get some people around and they would get on their knees and pray and then they would carry on and that was just the beginning of it and he became an amazing evangelist he came to Newcastle I don't know whether any of you remember that. This was, I mean, he died in the mid-1950s, I think. M much of his ministry was just before the war and, and so on. But he, he, he had a vision for Russia and then for Europe. And he saw thousands converted before the war in Latvia, in Hungary, in Czechoslovakia, in Poland, in Germany. He even went into Romania, which excited me. And after the First World War, he was the first Christian, first person actually to go back into Czechoslovakia, then under the control of the Russians. He was arrested as a spy, almost sent to Siberia. That was him. No education. But God took him and used him.
Amazing man. Our weakness is not a hindrance to God. Remember that. Are you holding back? Thirdly, expect Jesus to change your character. When I was, what I noticed as I read John chapter 1 was the emphasis on character. Firstly on Jesus, full of grace and truth. Amazing. John the Baptist, how humble. He said, I'm not worthy to untie Jesus' shoelaces. Look at Jesus' delight in Nathanael, a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. Here's a man of honesty and integrity. And speaking to Simon, he says, Simon, you will be called Kephas or Cephas, which means a rock. Some commentators say that Simon means unreliable. He was a reed, easily blown around, weak, shaky, bendy, unreliable. But Jesus knows all of that. But he also promises to transform his character. Peter, you're going to be a rock firm, unmovable. Jesus knows your character today. He's not surprised, not shocked. He's not saying, can't use her. He's no use to me. Look at his character. He simply promises to change us. God's plan for you and me is to become like Jesus. We know it. We know Ephesians 6, Jesus died to make his church holy. We know his, it's God's purpose from eternity past. Romans 8, 29. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Christ-likeness, someone said, is the eternal predestination, predestinating purpose of God for his church. We are being changed from one degree of glory to another. This work of the spirit 2 Corinthians 3 it's like the old black preacher used to say we ain't what we want to be we ain't what we're going to be but thank God we ain't what we was I like that the great change in your life is still ongoing are you being changed are you expecting character growth Fourthly, expand your ability to hear God. There's a nice story about an Irishman. I can tell stories about Irishmen. A nice Irish, a nice, an Irishman wanted to go fishing like the Eskimos do. And uh, he'd read books on the subject and he wanted to cut a, be able to cut a hole in the ice and go fishing. In a, in a, so he got all the tools together and went off to the nearest frozen lake and started to make a circular cut in the ice. And suddenly, a voice boomed from the heavens. There are no fish under the ice. And he was just a bit shocked. So he moved a few hundred yards down the lake and started cutting again. And the voice boomed again. There are no fish under the lake. So he was really quite frightened. So he rushed to the other end of the lake and started again. And the voice came again. There are no fish under the ice. So he stopped and he looked up. And he said, is that you, Lord? And the voice replied, no, I'm the manager of the ice rink. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Do you recognize the voice of God? That's the question. 
Do you recognize the voice of God? Do you hear God speaking? Are you hearing God through the word? And how else do you hear him? You know, the most... The thing that I'm most thankful about since joining this church is that I've grown in expectancy to, of hearing God's voice and in all the ways that God speaks to me. I did a talk at a men's breakfast a few weeks ago and all I did was dig out all from my journal and my diary all the ways God has spoken to me in the last four or five years. And I have pages of it. It's amazing. And all the different ways. And then last Sunday I was preaching at a little church and uh, I, I entitled my sermon Hearing Aids, How to Hear God. And uh, yeah, it was good. I've been growing in prophetic gifting. It's just been amazing. We, you know, we're good at talking to God, but are we really listening? Are we really listening? In John 1, Jesus speaks to Peter, you will be Kephas, a rock in the church. How did he know? How did he know that Peter would deny him three times? He speaks to Nathaniel, here's a true Israelite with nothing false in him. How did he know? How did he know Zacchaeus' name when he was up that tree? How did he know the intimate details of the woman at the well? So that the whole, she said to the, to the village, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Jesus knew because every word Jesus spoke, every miracle, every knowledge he had about people was communicated to him by his father. He only did what his, he saw his father doing, John 5, 19. He does only what his father commands him, John 14. And he said it would be the same for his followers. The Holy Spirit would empower us he would speak to us. He would teach us. He would remind us of Jesus' words. That's for you and me. You know, with the exception of chapter 17 in the book of Acts, um, every chapter contains a reference to supernatural communication from God to his servants. And you see, Luke is teaching in Acts that neither the early church nor us today can do it without God speaking to us in all the ways that are characteristic of the creativity of omniscient and omnipotent God. Jesus spoke prophetically into Peter and Nathaniel's lives, transforming words. Prophecy is a message from God to strengthen, encourage, and comfort. And three times uh, Paul speaks about prophecy uh, as a gift for three things, to build up the church, to strengthen, encourage, and comfort. He tells us to eagerly desire the gift of prophecy. It's just hearing God. Are you eager to have this gift? Eager to prophesy, to build the church? Just one of the ways to expand your ability to hear God. And lastly, Jesus spoke to Nathanael about Jacob's vision of the angels going up and down the ladder to heaven. And it made Jacob aware that he was in the presence of God. This is none other than the house of God, the very gates of heaven, he said. And Jesus then takes that a step further and he says, you know, it's me. You can know God's presence through me. I'm the link between earth and heaven. He was speaking about the cross. 
The ladder to heaven is Jesus and the cross is the way for all, not just for Israel, but for all. Forgiveness and peace with God is still available. Is your vision of God's plan large enough? Is your vision of God's plan large enough? David spoke last week about multiplication. Um, He spoke about South Shields Church Plant and Mike and all the wonderful things that are going to happen there. Well, I don't know whether he prophesied that or not, but I'm sure it's true. Uh, And that's not the end of the vision for Mike or for any of us. There is a world to be reached. Don't be content to reach one or two people. God's spoken to me. I've been thinking, oh, I've got a little village here I live in. Maybe, maybe, I could, maybe there could be a church planted here. And then I think, oh, don't think two or three people or think families or think villages or towns or cities even. Some of you may be nation changers. You believe it? Do you know when uh, David first showed the picture of this church to the leaders, uh, what struck me was a picture of the tower and instantly a thought from God came to me a prayer watchtower looking over the city and Marcia from, uh, was sitting beside me and I looked down and she had drawn a picture of that tower and it was just a confirmation to me and that vision of a prayer tower and people praying 24-7 prayer has been with me since then and I think David talked about it last Sunday too and he caught it and uh, how the real confirmation came to me when I was at the conference a few weeks ago and I was reading this biography of um, James Stewart and he had been in Riga uh, he was up in Orkney and uh, he, in Orkney he was up there to do a mission or do a, an evangelistic outreach and then suddenly God said go to Riga and so he said to the folks there sorry I can't stay and he left immediately and went to Riga and he had an amazing time there um, let me read you just a little bit of what he said um, <clears throat> He said it was not so much the crowds, although over 2,000 gathered every day for weeks and months. Oh no, it was the awful sense of the majesty and holiness of God. It was the liberty of the Spirit. The meetings continued sometimes all day and all night. Sometimes there were just as many people at 2 o'clock in the morning as in the afternoon. And then he talks about uh, a note about a significant prayer tower. This tower in the building was not a mere piece of architecture, but rather a tower designed for the ministry of intercession. There was established at the very beginning a chain of intercession that went on throughout the 24 hours of each day with hundreds hundreds of believers taking part at the very top of the tower there was a room for only about 10 people from this room one could gaze out over the entire city as a reminder of its desperate need just below this was another prayer room with some 50 people in it and he says no wonder the people who came to the meetings in the auditoriums below were touched by the power of God not only the Latvian church but the Russian German and Polish churches which met there And since these are James's first revival meetings on the continent, I feel it would be good here to quote his description of one of the services. And there's about three pages of description of how it went on and on and on and the amazing things that happened. It's just fantastic. Can we catch that vision for that tower up there? Go up and have a look. 
go up and stand in it and pray, God, bring intercessors. You go up there and pray that there will be revival in our church. Be careful if you go at the moment because there's a bit of a mess up there. And pray that we'll get the money together to get it sorted out and be used for prayer, that we would see revival. There's a chapter entitled in this book, it's called Knee Time and Harvest. God wants his church to be on their knees praying so that he can produce the harvest. And the things that struck me about this wonderful man is that it was an all-out commitment to hear God's voice and obey it. It was an ever-increasing vision and call to take the gospel wherever God led him. And it was a total determination to have more and more prayer for revival wherever he went. How about that? How about that? There, uh, there's some of my points up there. Maybe, no, I'm not going to go over them again. But I just felt there's some people here this morning that God wants to release you as evangelists. You probably know it in your heart already. But he just wants you to, he wants to release you in that. And there's a, quite a few of you here that God wants to be prayers. We need those who will intercede with a heart for revival.